0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Kwikwetlem peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, Watched your winding rivers as they blow around the bend, To me you're not a stranger, you'll
1: always be a friend,
0: Coming to you from the West Coast this is Politico today is march first twenty twenty three
1: I'm struck Londonna and
0: I'm Ian Bushfield on today's show, we have a fantastic interview with Alex Hemingway that we just recorded on the budget. He's out of the lockup well, the lockup was held yesterday, so he's he hasn't you know he's had more time to look at the budget than we have, but the budget is still also very fresh and it's a very big document but uh we get into a lot we got forty five minutes with him or more. We're just going to throw it over to that. Uh, but before we do, support us at patreon.com slash politicoast. Well, joining us now on Politicoast is Alex Hemingway, Senior Economist and Public Finance Policy Analyst at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, BC Office. Welcome to Politicoast, Alex.
2: Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, welcome. Have we had you
0: on this podcast? I know you've done Canby Report before. No,
2: no, I'm the first timer. I'm excited. <laughs>
0: This should be good. You spent yesterday morning sitting in a dark hotel conference hall with a lot of other nerds and policy wonks uh, listening to the introduction of the BC budget in the lockup before it was officially released. So that's what we're here to talk with you about today. First, let's maybe just start with like, what was that experience like? Like, What is the lockup and how much? How much fun was
2: it? Yeah, you know, while there were sandwiches and uh, and a pretty good brownie in the little bag lunches lunches they have for us, so I guess I can't complain. We've been we we're at CCPA. We're there uh, every year basically, and I've been going for the past six or seven years uh, with some COVID exceptions. Uh, Yeah, basically, it's um, a bunch of journalists in one part of the conference center reading the budget and a bunch of stakeholders of various kinds uh and and business lobbyists and the whole gamut uh reading the budget and then uh you know it, it's it's a bit of an odd thing i don't know in a sense why do you need to see the budget a few hours in advance but i think the purpose is mainly that the journalists all want to press send on their stories at the same time so so if we're all in there and they can get their comments then then they can do that uh but yeah, it's 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 a big document to analyze in a short time and I, I, I can't claim to to have all the nuances digested, but it but it's been an interesting one.
1: Well then uh rather than diving right into the nuances, what's your overall impression of it?
2: Yeah, so I think, you know, overall um there's some really good movement in this budget. There's some pretty substantial funding increases in some big areas, important areas areas that I think we would have expected to see given all the signals from the provincial government in recent weeks and months so housing got a big uh, funding bump healthcare as well uh there were some increases to uh, uh the shelter rate that uh income assistance and, and uh, uh those on uh, persons with disability assistance get uh and you know the other thing that stood out to me big picture is you know we are shifting away from you know this fiscal year that's coming to an end there's a big surplus that's been talked about and some of that's uh you know been spent in in recent weeks and there's been a trickle of announcements but we're moving into possible likely deficits over the next few years that's what the government's projecting and they're projecting it pretty openly uh and actually I think that's a good thing I mean that's that's appropriate going into an economic slowdown you know we don't know how deep that uh slowdown's going to be yet uh, but I think more importantly, uh, deficits are preferable to shortchanging investment in in really critical public services that have been neglected for far too long, uh, under multiple governments, frankly. Um so so that's good to see because I think, you know, there is potentially a political cost to pay for for running deficits um and and you know, prioritizing investment over deficit fear mongering, I think is a very good thing. Yeah, I
0: noticed that rhetorical shift that this budget was focused on spending and even a day or two ago before the budget i saw a headline that eb was trying to talk about the social deficits or there are a lot of more important deficits and i think he was even like hinting the day before the budget dropped that like i don't care what the like bottom line deficit is if we can address the healthcare deficit and the housing deficit and he was trying to frame it that way i don't know if it worked it felt a little sloppy and chunky, as a lot of his metaphors are. He's just that kind of guy. But um, this is his first budget. It's Katrine Conroy's first budget as finance minister. And in some ways, that feels like markedly different than the John Horgan, Selina Robinson budgets that were were big spending budgets, no doubt about it. But there was also a focus on revenue in those, or at least portraying a balance Uh, I think the question I want to bring here, though, is one of the things we've seen with budgets here in BC, but also across the country, is assumptions that work in the government's favor over the long term. So, it'll start with a big deficit, but then, like, six months down the road, it's like, oh, magically, it's gone, and we have a surplus. How, Like, you've looked at a lot of these budgets, and you're the policy economist wonk here. How... How trustworthy do you see the assumptions based uh, baked into this?
2: Yeah. So, yeah, that that pattern that you're talking about, we've seen oh, over many years back to the BC Liberals through through the BC NDP years of trying to create a, a year-end pleasant surprise, whether it's a smaller deficit or a surplus. Uh, and, you know, that, that comes in a bunch of forms that's baked into the budget in various ways. One is, uh, and this just seems to be something that the Ministry of Finance civil service staff do uh you know of course with political direction but it hadn't really changed much with the change of government uh they bake in assumptions that economic growth is going to be a bit slower than the private sector forecasters are saying at any given point in time uh, but they also bake in uh very large contingency funds of various kinds and forecast allowances those have really increased over the past uh, several years they they did they increased a lot under the ndp actually So to the point where they're multi billion dollars per year. Now you know there's some justification for that. I think in in the sense that you know certainly through the pandemic you know you can point to a lot of uncertainty that justifies putting aside contingency funds. I think you know the the challenge with that is that it uh, you know can create I in in my view kind of overly conservative budgeting process that actually biases against public spending when that's underspending has been a big problem okay but you're asking what does that look like in budget 2023 there are still large contingency funds in this budget one shift i noticed though is that there there's less entirely generalized and unallocated contingency funds and there's a bunch of smaller contingency funds that are at least notionally allocated to different areas where there's going to be uncertainty so a bunch of it actually about half of them of those contingency funds for any given year uh, relate to uh, public sector worker contracts that are still outstanding. So yeah, a lot of that's going to get used used up. So that's reasonable. There's some attached to Clean BC, and then there's about a billion or a billion and a half per year in general contingency funds. So that's still baked in. And when you add all of those together, they they are more than the projected deficits over the next few years as well. So we'll see where that. Where that lands us at year end,
1: yeah, I did also notice that the uh, revenue is forecasted to drop uh, by a fair amount this year, both on like personal income taxes, a lot on the corporate side revenue uh, or economic growth. They really have slowing down in here, so I don't know how accurate those projections are, but you do get the sense they're being pretty conservative on where that's going.
2: Yeah, and a lot of that those a lot of those revenue projections hinge on on the economic growth. Projections and they do—they're fairly consistent in uh, projecting overall GDP growth at about you know zero point one percent less than whatever the Economic Forecast Council has said in its most recent uh, uh, advice to government. So that that affects uh, the revenue uh, projections. But with the inflationary environment, that that's put a lot of volatility on the revenue side. So that part of why we ended up with this massive. Surplus um, for the fiscal year that's coming to an end uh you know it was about five point seven billion dollars going into the budget now they've whittled it down to about three point six billion uh had to do with higher than expected um tax revenues that can come in the form of, sorry, I'm going down a really wonky rabbit hole here, but there's sometimes like prior year adjustments to the income tax revenues in the budget. So those end up being one-off increases that's part of the giant surplus, but some of it was increases to the ongoing income tax base that will roll over year to year. But to your point, Scott, you know, economic growth is is slowing and we would expect uh tax revenue growth to, to slow with that but but there is a lot of uncertainty year to year to how that's going to play out that
0: rolls into the question i wanted to ask around revenue before we get into the like nitty-gritty of the spending that's in here there is a lot of new spending but as far as i can tell there's no new revenue streams and so how is this budget sustainable long term is it purely just hoping they grow the economy and tax base that it covers the new spending or are they just hoping like the Deficit for this year is mostly just that the economy is going to be bad, and then it'll just go away.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. So there is a some source of new revenue, which is the carbon tax increasing uh, each year. Now a bunch of that's going to go straight back out the door in in the form of increased climate action tax credit. So, but some of it is going to stay and, and hopefully go to to spending on on dealing with the climate crisis. Um, you know my my view of it is so so one of the metrics I like to look at is you know where is spending at as a and but this will get back to your revenue question uh where is spending at as a share of GDP as a share of our total economic output in a given year and you know we saw a big decline in that measure under the b c liberal government, and it didn't really recover under the, Hor- the early years of the horgan government and then you know it's a volatile measure, so it spiked during the pandemic there was lots of temporary spending and and an economic downturn, but it's interesting. So it's it's leveling off again at a slightly higher uh, level, higher spending as a share of GDP than was the case prior to the pandemic, still far lower than it was 25 years ago, but there is like, it looks more like a small structural increase in spending than we saw in the Horgan years. Okay, so how do you fund that? I think, you know, you can partly fund that through, uh, you know, economic, uh, the economy picking back up when it does but ultimately you know it and it's fine to run you know small deficits for a few years that's not really significant from an economic point of view but ultimately yeah you want to you, you want and need to raise additional revenue if you're going to increase public investment and you know we do have room to do that in this province but that's not that's not particularly uh, on the agenda i haven't seen any signal of that from this government but you know at CCPA, we have plenty of ideas about how to do that. We can get into that if you want.
1: Well, uh, let's kind of dive into the main uh, sections of the budget in terms of what the uh, program allocation is and the new spending announced. And uh, right off the bat, they lead off with healthcare as the big one on there. So, what's in the uh, budget healthcare wise? Yeah,
2: so in terms of healthcare, uh, there's a pretty significant funding increase. We're talking about six point three billion dollars uh, over three years, and you know every year is record funding for everything usually. So that doesn't necessarily tell you anything in of itself. But if you sort of look at the year-over-year graphs, it is a significant increase, and that's going towards uh, a number of things. A number of things, some of which we heard about pre-budget. Um, one is the the funding for cancer care. Um, that ends up being $270 million in the three-year budget plan, and you know they've got a longer plan for that as well. Uh, there's a billion dollars to deal with the, the staffing shortages, right? So going towards uh, recruitment of healthcare workers, retention, training of various kinds. Um, and then one of the other big items there is a little over a billion dollars to pay for um, the new uh, payment model for family doctors, which was announced late last year. Uh, you know, and that's necessary. There was a need for reform of that model, although, I, you know, uh, in in my view, it, it, it falls down a bit in, in that it's not geared towards uh, building out an expanded community health center model in our primary care system, which, you know, that whole idea of team-based care delivered through not-for-profit community health centers is... Uh, you know it, it is an evidence based model of how to do primary care well. We still have quite a doctor centered model um in in place here you know it, it's a bit disappointing you know over the past six years to not see community health centers prioritized um and then the other big one um and I'll stop going on it, it, on the health file is uh mental health addictions and treatment services eight eight hundred and sixty seven million uh over three years so more treatment beds. Uh, for addictions, they're talking about. I'm basically quoting here a new model of seamless care to support people through their enco- entire recovery journey, um, and you know I think that's all to the good. But and th- there's a little bit of funding for uh, uh, increasing safe supply. There's not much detailed on that, but that seems to be within the quite limited prescribed safe supply model uh, that that we've seen to date, and is not really that. Uh, uh, you know drastic expansion of safe supply that that many myself included think is necessary to 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 uh really slow down the devastating deaths that we're seeing every day in terms of the toxic drug crisis the yeah the addiction
0: money there was teased pretty well in advance even last week with a few articles highlighting that the BC NDP was basically just going to steal the BC Liberals plan tweak it in a few fundamental ways make sure that it's focused more on um, non profit and uh new f- new uh treatment beds rather than uh just waiving fees on all existing often for profit or uh, unregulated beds and you know there's ideological arguments we could have there uh but I think most people have recognized that a lot more needs to be done on all fronts of this crisis, as you were just alluding to. I want to come back to this uh doctor payment plan cuz of 1.1 billion dollars pretty significant for family doctors um is this mostly just covering like the existing number of doctors that we have with just better remuneration or are they hoping this also this new plan will attract new family doctors and see more like is this paying for more doctors essentially or is it just giving the existing ones more money
2: yeah, it's a good question. I think the intention is certainly both. Like, there's a recognition there that we need to stop hemorrhaging doctors from the system, and and you know, there's obviously a shortage, um, and so we need to bring new doctors in. I haven't poured over the details of sort of you know how that uh, comes out in the wash in terms of the dollars, um, but you know, it is. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I already said you know, I I I do think that the the shortcoming is how doctor centered this is for all the talk we heard about team based care over the past several years i mean that's still the idea and the intention is that we're supposed to be shifting towards a type of team based care but the uh you know the this most obvious model to use the community health center model just doesn't seem to be on the agenda and i have to be honest i i really don't understand why you know one of our research associates um Andy Longhurst has has written about this uh, and all the international evidence on on that on this community health center model for folks who are interested, I recommend checking that out. Uh,
1: it's also worth mentioning that this is pretty much breaking more or less as we're recording. But uh, there's a new twenty seven and a half billion dollar deal the uh, feds and the province just announced on health care. Uh, don't naturally know how many years that spread over. Uh, so that'll help offset some of the cost Ten. though. But 10 what? years,
0: Scott. Oh. 10
1: years, okay. <laughs>
0: Two, uh, 2.7 a year. Yeah. Although I think that's it's largely helps, front-loaded. But like, but.
1: Yeah, doesn't cover off the entirety of the new spending in here. And that's something I've kind of noticed is that, yeah, healthcare, like you said, almost always hits record levels every budget. And it seems to be the record levels are growing faster than the economy overall. And I didn't see much in here about, Plans to try and keep that into a more sustainable trajectory. I mean, the short term needs are pretty readily apparent for a lot of us, but uh, the long term stuff—it's not entirely clear. The budget really has much of an answer on that.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting—it's an interesting one. I mean, I do think we we kind of need to do both with healthcare. I do think we need additional resources, and and we have the capacity to bring that to the table. It was interesting to see, you know uh a little bit of a shift in rhetoric after that federal deal was struck where uh you know the the province were like we need federal money we need federal money and i i'm all for that but once it was struck i, th- I think i saw E. B. saying at some point that you know okay well we're not gonna we're not gonna wait uh to invest you know and we're not gonna limit ourselves to what the feds have put on the table and sort of you know the the way that the system is under this enormous strain and, and really in crisis right now i think um you know highlights the need to put more resources in it but we, it needs to be coupled with well designed policies like we were talking about in relation to primary care but also you know in, in areas like surgical wait times and, and uh you know uh, access to specialists and so on there there are great again there are great international models uh on how to do this more efficiently in in the public sector you know it's it, it's a bit of a the the privatization thing can be a bit of a, a red herring uh you know it sounds on a very surface level like a possible solution to easing pressures on the public system but when you have a workforce shortage when you don't have enough doctors and nurses uh you know private clinics just end up pulling those doctors and nurses into a parallel system and putting even more strain on, on the public system. But there, I, I, I take your point well, Scott. I mean, there are efficiencies to be made as well through good policy design. It's not just about pouring more money in.
0: Well, the next section in the budget summary that I'll just use as my crib notes is the affordable and attainable housing section. This is a, something I know all three of us care deeply about. Uh, $4.2 billion in new operating and capital funding over three years to build and unlock more homes. Break it down a little bit for us, Alex. I assumed you look quite closely at the housing funding. It, when I looked at this, there wasn't a lot of hard details as I think they're planning to roll that out later. But what can we say from what's in this document?
2: Yeah, there's there's surprisingly little detail in there. There's a big new chunk of funding. Um, it's not entirely clear how it breaks down uh you know it's a mix of uh capital and operating funding there's not anything like uh unit targets for how many homes we're gonna get online with this and the explanation given you know this is referenced in the document, and I think the minister said it on the day is look the the refreshed housing plan is coming you're going to hear about it from Ravi Kalon this spring um and so so just you know wait and see there there were a couple of interesting nuggets in there. Um, there there was one thing that caught my eye because, you know, I mean, sort of my perspective on the housing thing is, A, we need a massive investment in public and nonprofit housing. Um, so, you know, a, a much bigger scale of investment than we're seeing here, although it is a big bump in the envelope, that's good. Uh, and the other piece is just addressing the overall housing shortage and, and, and some of the municipal level roadblocks to housing in the form of zoning. So, in the budget, you, there is 57 million dollars. Uh, the, uh, the sentence explaining it says 57 million to unlock uh, more home, more homes through new residential zoning measures and by reducing the time and costs associated with local government approval processes. So, I thought that was interesting. I mean, we have heard, uh, listeners may have heard uh, about the, uh, you know, provincial announcements about shortening provincial permitting times for housing you know most of those barriers are municipal but province wants to get its act together too but that bit about unlocking new new residential zoning measures from the province that's an interesting one you don't usually hear the province talking about zoning so i don't know if that's going to go to implementation of the housing supply act that they uh they passed late last year uh but that was a little nugget of things encouraging but i feel like I'm kind of in a holding pattern about evaluating this budget on the housing front because the details aren't there.
1: Yeah, because that, like, sentence goes on to say, by reducing time and costs associated with local government approval process, and it's not clear what shoveling $57 million that that's necessarily going to do. Like, as far as I can tell, uh, you know, City of Vancouver, the problem isn't the lack of funding uh, for the city planning department. It's process-based. And the resources are there to make things go faster if they need to be already. I mean,
0: the province could directly just hire larger planning departments, I guess, to support the cumbersome processes. Even a cumbersome process with more people d- operating it can move a little bit faster. But I, yeah, I don't think any of us are thinking that's what's going to come through. So,
1: yeah, and it's kind of unfortunate because yeah, it's great to see more money in here. But if you put mu- push money towards a system that's designed to be slow and cumbersome to build housing, you're probably not going to build all that much all that quickly, even with the more funds.
2: Yeah, I'm curious what they're going to find with, you know, with the provincial permitting reforms they announced, they're sort of got this single window model. So project proponents for housing are supposed to be able to come to one, one stop shop for their provincial permits for for projects where that's relevant. And I, I wonder if one thing they're trying to do with that is use it as a kind of demonstration project to suggest that municipalities set up that kind of one-stop shop. And I don't know on the ground, I don't know how it works well enough. I don't know if you folks do in terms of, you know, if you're gonna set up that type of system, does that require additional staff and resources or can you just reorganize it so it it works better? And especially, you know, in an environment where a lot of us would say we need to be substantially increasing housing approvals. You know, there's just gonna be more projects through the pipeline. Maybe there is a case that, You need to reorganize and... The other thing that I think is an
0: easier win and to get housing out of this is their focus on transit-oriented development, especially on the promise of thousands of new units of student housing. I know one of the things the government has done is unlocked uh, the ability of universities to access funds to build student housing. And I think that's been relatively successful. And I'm like, it's not the broader solution, but there is like an acute crisis on campuses for students and just seeing a bit more money to help build student housing, I think is a pretty good win and just like such low hanging fruit.
2: Yeah, it makes sense to me. I haven't followed that in, in depth, but you know, when you're, if you're UBC and you have this incredibly valuable land, uh yeah, things follow
1: pretty obviously uh, from that in terms of building some housing on it. And of course, we're finally getting something approach in the renter's rebate out of here a little different but uh there's a new tax credit they've uh, released on that.
2: Yeah, so the renter's rebate has ended up taking the form of an income tested refundable tax credit. So tax credit where, you know, it even if you don't have enough income to pay tax, you can still get value out of it. That's the refundable portion valued as originally discussed at $400 per year. For households with incomes up to sixty thousand dollars, so that you know, definitely income tested there. You'll get a partial credit um, up to eighty thousand dollars household income. Um, you know, it's good, I guess. It's it's a bit of a, it's always been a bit of a band aid idea, and you know, it, the crisis is bad enough that may, maybe you do need a band aid on top of everything else. But ultimately, you know, it's going to get swallowed up pretty quickly by rent increases if. If we don't get the underlying crisis under control, I mean the other thing, and I'm sure you guys have been thinking about this too, is that stands out is okay. We've got this renters rebate. Um, the outlay is $300 million per year. Compare that to the homeowner grants, uh, $900 million a year, not income tested, and pays a higher amount. Pays $570 as the base amount. So that inequity remains
0: yeah i was gonna say i've always kind of viewed the renter's rebate promise as a like half-assed attempt to bring equity with the homeowner grant but i mean the homeowner grant is quasi wealth tested in that not every house qualifies yeah it's it's,
1: but it's what like one point eight. i think it's over 2 million million now isn't it or yeah it might even be up to two now can't recall off my head but most houses qualify yeah you have to be like a you're basically a multimillionaire by the time you get to no longer qualify for that yeah yeah totally and
2: well yeah I think the formula works that ninety one or ninety two percent' the ninety
1: fifth percentile we always
2: it? get it is it ninety fifth yeah somewhere up there and so they just keep raising the threshold yeah about two million now right?
0: I did look up earlier the uh, Bank of Canada's inflation estimator that a four hundred dollar uh rebate in 2017 would be worth four hundred and seventy five now so they've uh, shortchanged, and I don't. And I think it'd be more accurate to just use it against rent increases over that time. And but I didn't do that calculation. But anyway, they've shortchanged British Columbian renters seventy five bucks plus the wealthy uh, renters.
1: But I think CBC looked at it, and um it basically covers less than a month's one month's difference in the average rent from then and now.
0: Like yeah, it's one of those things that doesn't hurt, and especially as a refundable credit does do a lot of good for people at the lowest income. And I also like, I know during the pandemic, they did a quasi renter's rebate, but it was essentially just a cash transfer to landlords. And I think this is at least a little bit more in the spirit of what was originally promised and will help a number of people because $400 in your pocket, if you are struggling to get by, won't hurt. And so, you know, it's positive in some ways. And I think it brings us to the next section, which is. Helping British companies—the the, the, let's throw money at people section. Um mm-hmm. This, you know, inflation is bad, and so we're going to take every tax credit we have and boost it as far as I can read.
2: Yeah, uh well, Maybe I guess it's everyone. a good time to talk about the increase to the shelter rate for for people getting income assistance and and, and disability, which we touched on at the top. So there the good thing with the renter's benefit is that's going to stack on top of the increase to the, um, shelter rate. So, I mean, I think the shelter rate for had become kind of an embarrassment for the government. $375 was, was the shelter allowance under income assistance and disability. Um, and they've increased that fairly substantially $125 a month to $500, obviously still lower than shelter costs for almost anyone, but, uh, 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 a real improvement there the so it's good it's great to see more income for for people um on assistance and and on uh receiving disability benefits. One problem with the way they've done it by putting it in the shelter allowance it actually means that um people who are unhoused won't get it because they don't get and I actually I didn't realize this until the other day they don't get the shelter amount you know if you're on on welfare and and you're homeless, you don't even get the full amount because you're, it's, not, it's out, it, it really is, has to go to your shelter costs quite directly, apparently. So that that's a bit unfortunate. But it, I was surprised to see, you know, we were looking for an increase on on income assistance. And uh, I was happily surprised to see something fairly substantial there. But of course, it's still far below the poverty line. Um, so, you know, that's, that remains a big problem.
1: Yeah, hit, hit up your
2: highlights. Um, do you want to go through some of the other ones? There's a long list. <laughs> there's a long list. Yeah, so I, I, one that uh, a big one that stands out is uh, the climate action tax credit, um, which has been in place you know for quite a while um, in the era of the carbon tax in BC, but it saw a big bump this year. So the the amount, the maximum amount that you can receive under that tax credit for adults is uh, it more than doubled to four hundred and forty seven dollars per year. And per child doubled to 111 dollars per year, um, so that's that's big. I mean, these are all income tested uh, as well, uh, and uh, they've also announced that as the carbon tax increases, you know, it's going to increase by 15 dollars a year going ahead in line with federal requirements. the The tax credit itself will continue to increase, um, and they kind of they provided some interesting estimates uh, about sort of where they're where they're headed with this. Um, they're saying that as of now, um, households with incomes under $60,000 will receive will typically receive more back in the credit than they're actually paying out in carbon tax. But they want to see that expanded by, by 2030 uh, so that the language they use is that a significant majority would be getting back more in the credit than they're paying in carbon tax. So that leaves a bunch open to interpretation, but it gives you a sense of where they're headed. Um, one other one is the BC Family uh, Benefit, uh, which has been in place for a couple of years and, and got an increase as well. The most substantial increase there is to single parents who are going to see uh, an additional $500 a year. Um, uh, so yeah, a big suite of tax credits there. I'm trying to think if I, I missed any. I think those are the big ones. Um, you know, there, and th- there's other sort of related afford. You know, affordability measures, broadly speaking, they also re- raised the earnings exemption for people on income assistance and disability. So you can earn a little bit more money uh, while doing that. Uh, there's funding for uh, school, uh, school lunch programs to, to uh, take some costs off people that way. Uh, and, and there's other smaller supplements uh, for, for those uh, on, on lower incomes, but unfortunately still not stacking up to, to bringing a lot of people above the poverty. I know line. one of the
0: big announcements or one of the announcements in there that a few of my friends, including Teal Phelps Bondaroff, who I work with at the Humanist Association at times, that he's been lobbying for years on is the free prescription contraception uh, pledge, which is finally yes. in there. Meaning as of April 1st, uh, the pill... Uh, IUDs uh, and, and Plan B, I believe, are all going to be fully covered by the provincial government, which is a huge win and will save you know, women and non-binary people a lot of money if they are on birth control.
2: Absolutely. I also noticed it was the one nice thing Kevin Falcon had to say about, about the budget when I heard him on the radio yesterday. He was like, okay. This yeah, is that, that was something
0: was. that uh, all parties had supported in the last campaign and it took uh, three years to get us there since then too long, but we're there.
1: Uh, The other big thing I noticed that kind of stood out and was probably the thing that's, uh, I would say the biggest departure from what you would guess a stereotypical NDP budget was, is there also putting a fair bit of money towards public safety uh, spending here, uh, particularly 230 million uh, to hire uh, up to 256 RCMP officers, as well as, Uh, Providing more funding for uh, dedicated investigation teams.
2: Yeah, I have to admit that's that's one of the parts that I didn't really (laughs) look at very closely yet. So I, I don't. Sorry, I don't have anything to say on that one. It's kind of it is interesting to see them try and walk a line with the rhetoric around public safety and and you know while putting more resources into policing, which is not something I would particularly support. Trying to couch it in terms of getting at root causes, uh, and addressing underlying poverty. So that's been, I think, I think the funding here,
0: I don't think it's, well, I think it's like new funding, but it was funding that was announced earlier. I think this is largely tied to that safer communities action plan that EB announced shortly after being elected or named leader. So I think this is realizing those announcements and I'm not sure if it's actually new, um, I don't think any of us know that 100% for sure, but there is additional, like, the whole safe think, and healthy yeah. communities section is $462 million over three years. That includes the 230 that you talked about, Scott, for RCMP officers, and I remember him talking about hiring more RCMP officers, and maybe they hadn't named the exact numbers I then. It feel,
1: vaguely feels like that's a higher number than they had before, it might but be. I... I can't recall, um, um,
0: yeah, there's also a but focus yeah, there on, like, yeah, expanding indigenous justice centers, uh expanding support for the human rights tribunal and independent investigations office, uh, and some money to modernize the police act, which would be interesting
1: yeah twenty five million for that so.
0: maybe you did pay a bit more attention, Alex, to the clean economy section and the environment. is there you mentioned the increase to the carbon tax, uh, what else are we doing? In, is there a lot in here in specific terms on climate? I only skimmed it a little bit.
2: There, there didn't seem to be. I, I talked to a few climate-focused folks in the lockup as well. You know, the the carbon tax seems to be the centerpiece of the climate plan. Still, there there were a smattering of other climate uh, measures in there. A couple of them are and a couple of good ones like uh, 100 million dollars over 3 years for active transportation investment which is obviously more than climate policy but it is climate policy and um there was uh a a fair amount on the adaptation and emergency response side so there's they're putting aside an extra 100 million a year in capital funding to replace uh infrastructure damage by climate emergencies uh and 85 million for emergency response planning um you know i, I you, you used to be more plugged into climate and you know worked on fossil fuel divestment at UBC it certainly seems you know from from the people that i've talked to that we're not there we're not there yet in terms of meeting our climate commitments definitely not in terms of you know facing up to the scale and urgency of of the climate crisis in terms of uh, the funding that's on the table for cl- climate change and, and squaring the squaring the lng ambitions of the province with with our climate targets I, I i recall there was maybe some shift in rhetoric from the premier around that in terms of saying that you know lng expansion would have to fit in the climate plan so it'd be interesting to see how that policy plays out and you know particularly after everything that went on with the leadership race to
1: so we covered off kind of the main segments that uh, got the the highlights and uh, a section in the table of contents more or less, um, but like, there's also a bunch of ministries that didn't get a huge amount of focus. Like, I don't see really an education section highlighted there, which is a little unusual for a budget, but uh, kind of what's your broad take on kind of what's there, what's missing, and kind of like, what are the gaps in this budget?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and we've talked about some of them in terms of the details on housing or, or, or you know, uh, bringing income assistance rates up, up higher. But you know, one thing that w- was interesting it appeared to be missing in the budget, but maybe actually isn't, is childcare. There's no section on child care, but the explanation seemed to be that it was all announced last year. You know, there were multi-year funding commitments announced last year and uh, a framework and plan for uh, bringing new spaces online it's just going to be critical to see the follow through on that you know anyone who's tried to look for childcare knows that fees may be cut but spaces are incredibly hard to find and we need a a workforce plan you know we have a workforce plan for healthcare we need a workforce plan for childcare there there is a promise in place to um bring in a pr- province wide uh wage grid for for early childhood educators which, you know, is is something that the Child Care Coalition has been calling for and, and is badly needed. But you don't just need a grid. You need a grid that's set high enough to actually recruit workers into the sector. And, you know, it's a very gendered sector, too. So there's a big equity question there in terms of the wages. And similarly, on, on the K-12 to education, that's another area where there's a workforce challenge, right? There's teacher shortages. And uh, as far as I can tell, and from talking to some of the education folks in the lockup, there's nothing there to address that recruitment and retention uh, challenge, aside from the fact that the teachers did sign, you know, an improved contract. But in terms of focused efforts to to deal with that problem, uh, nothing that I can see uh, in the budget.
0: We had a couple questions from our patrons as well. They're unbelievably wonky. The first the first one from Shreyas <laughs> asks, do you have modeling to convert dollars of capital investments into number of houses built or housing units built? Uh, I guess another way to frame that would be with, you know, $4 billion of additional investment into housing, although not all of that is going to construction. Some of that is to operating. Like, do you have a ballpark of like what you would hope to see that translate into actual houses and homes?
2: So, in terms of that dollar figure, it's pretty hard to say because, as you say, it's a mix of operating capital. And yeah. the other thing I think that makes it difficult is that you know and and uh, you know, we've published a report on this at CCPA, you know there is a, a way of looking at public investment in housing where you know you, you do it on a self-financing basis, essentially. You, you try and uh, cover the interest costs of the upfront capital borrowing with the rents that are coming in and, and maybe set rents a little bit below. Uh, market foregoing the profit that a, a private rental developer might do and, and taking advantage of your lower interest rates. So by that metric, you know if, if you're building a bunch of say middle class rental housing on that model and then you're trying to layer in some of this money to achieve deeper affordability uh, in some of those units, that money can go a lot further. So that's why I'm really curious to see. You know, One thing that didn't appear in the budget was the BC Builds program uh, that EB is been talking about, and I guess that's that's still to come right and so I'm very curious to see in the sort of bullet point version of that policy that they put out there uh uh there was some indication that they might be interested in that kind of model that I was just describing um so you know if that kind of thing gets on the off the ground, that could stretch the housing dollars a lot further if not you know 4 billion dollars is definitely not going to take us to where we need to be on in terms of new non-market units you know our, our ask these days uh from CCPA is 25,000 units uh every year we think that should be the goal and that's you know alongside an overall increase in in market supply as well so you know that that's uh uh you know the big changes will be would be needed to to, to get there and I'm, I think, like you guys and, and the listeners, are waiting with eager anticipation for Ravi Kalan's plan, and my hopes are so high that I, I, I fear, <laughs> I fear for how I'm going to react. <laughs>
1: uh, and uh, the other patron question from Nick is: uh, Do you know any ROI comparative analysis of different types of transportation investment, aka bike lanes versus buses versus skytrains?
2: no i don't but i want to know it too so uh if it's on the podcast or your listener find some well it does remind
0: me of a tangential question is another thing that's not really in here is expanding transit like there's a bit on active transportation that you mentioned and that's something i think we're all big supporters of um but like ubc skytrain hasn't been pledged uh Beyond that, there's a lot of other transportation issues, especially in like Transport 2050 and all these other plans that different municipalities have.
1: Yeah, if you go to the capital funding breakdown in there, there's just a list of highway projects and then the existing SkyTrain projects that are already underway that, you know, a couple weeks ago were literally going under my apartment as they're building it. And yeah, not much, nothing new there.
2: Well, the one thing I noticed and I haven't really been able to make sense of it yet, is that there's actually a pretty big increase in BC transit's um capital spending. I, I don't see I didn't see it broken out. It might be in there somewhere, but it goes from about a hundred and eleven million last year to five hundred million um in a few years' time. And so I'm not sure what that is. I don't know that well how BC Transit works. I wonder if that just means they need to buy a bunch of buses or something. Um in in their normal cycle of operations, because there wasn't much verbal or, or sort of narrative discussion of it that I could find anywhere in the budget.
1: I don't know if this would be broken down in Clean BC or under the other one, but uh, if I recall, Clean BC had a bunch of money in it for uh, more in, uh, low emission buses and bus infrastructure. So oh, that could potentially be it, but okay. that was also announced just a couple of years Google
0: ago. Google search so. searching mm. through it, I do see sixty million for a Victoria handy dart facility for BC transit. Uh um, right. but that's not okay. that's, 10, that's not hundreds of millions.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the only one I saw too, now that you mentioned it. Did the same, same idea.
0: So yeah. I mean some of those uh tra- big transportation announcements tend to wait until the federal government is also on board and then they just Co-announce them and put it in the next budget, which is always a bit frustrating because yeah. it would be nice to move ahead with some of that here in BC.
2: It, that's yeah, that's you took the words out of my mouth. It's frustrating because I don't know, and maybe you know, maybe there is some good case for it to to make sure the feds are at the table. But it seems like overall, it would be better for the province to be out there in a leadership position saying, and you know, like I don't think maybe this is a simplistic way of looking at it, but. I don't think they have to wait for the mayor's council or wait for the federal government. I mean, I think if you have a vision for the province and you're serious about expanding housing in the way that E.B. has signaled that he is, then we should be talking about way more ambitious uh, mass transit planning and, and talking about it right now, I'm not holding it back. Let's start planning around it. <laughs> Where's our our line and you know all the other fantasy SkyTrain map lines?
0: <laughs> well, let's just close it off back to the top. We asked you, you know, what were your overall impressions? And maybe I guess, I know that CCPA's analysis isn't up yet, but it'll probably be online by the time this podcast is out on the internet. Uh, So obviously, people should go take a look for that. But like, if you had one takeaway for listeners from this budget, and how they should be conceptualizing it, what would you like, put in their minds?
2: Yeah, uh, go to paulcino.ca and read the <laughs> read the analysis if you want. But yeah, no, in terms of that overall takeaway, I mean, I think there is a genuine and perceptible shift here towards prioritizing public investment over issues like um, um, the deficit, you know, as we talked about, I, that should be complemented by tax increases on, on those at the top to balance it out in the long run. But so... So I think I don't know. I've been thinking about this recently, and you know, we're I think we're we're in this space where there have been a lot of cumulative shifts in the right direction, but there's still such big problems on the ground, right? And I guess you've seen the premier talk about it too, needing to see for to have British Columbians see the results of the policies, you know, before the next election. I think that's very true, Um, because you know, ultimately. I I do worry, you know, when we go halfway on policies, you know, like just take safe supply as an example, right? There was this moment, you know, a year or two ago where the government said, you know, we're doing safe supply, we're doing it. And it didn't fundamentally change things because it was a half, it was a half policy. It didn't actually uh, get implemented in full. And I think that can discredit the policy. And and so I worry about the same thing. If we do, if we move in good directions on housing, for example, but we're not seeing rents come down and and it's not implemented in a fulsome way, uh, that is not only bad for the people affected, it discredits the policies and and could, you know, uh, derail the whole debate on these issues. So I think, you know, to more directly answer your question, things are moving in the right direction, but I I, I think they have to keep ramping up and the policies have to keep getting refined. The resources have to continue increasing until we see results on the ground. uh, because that's ultimately what, what matters. Moving in the right direction isn't going to be enough for, forever. We have to match the, the scale of the crises that we're facing.
1: Uh, Alex, thank you for uh, joining us on Playcoast today. Uh, if people are interested in finding out your specific tapes, uh do you want to plug your Twitter or are you also off that full time at this point? <laughs>
2: Policynote.ca and very sporadically on, on Twitter, uh, at one Alex Hemingway. This was fun. Thank you so much Thanks for having me on, guys. This was really fun. And that has been
1: Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreoncom toast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikov. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.